Hi, I'm Eden. And I'm Nicole. Welcome to Roadside, Roadside Horror, Horror Show. Show. We are in Oklahoma and not the musical. <laughs> I really wanted to be curly. <laughs> um, yeah, so Nicole. Yes, Eden. Uh, I actually have two fun things that I wanted to talk about before we officially, officially start the episode. Okay, let's go for it. Okay, one of them is true crime related and one of them is just funny because my mom's weird. (laughs) Okay, well, why don't you hit me with the true crime one first? Okay, so uh, we were at Barnes & Noble the other day and I found this board game called, what the heck is it called now? Chronicles of Crime. Okay. And you like try to solve a murder and it's for like one to four players. And it does everything through this app. There's like little QR codes on all the cards. Oh, cool. Um, yeah. So I'm really interested in trying to play it. Uh, it was supposed to come on Monday, but it came today and I haven't touched it yet, but I did look inside the box and it looks really fun. And I'll definitely give a full review once I get to play it. So probably our next episode. Okay, so Chronicles of Crime game review coming at you on Oklahoma Part 2. Yeah. So the other thing that I wanted to talk about involving my mom, ugh, it's it's crazy. So I told you that uh, Damon and I tie-dyed some shirts. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Well, we tie-dyed them, then we, uh, we did that outside, and then we stuck them in some bags and put them on the porch uh, to, you know, set. And they turned out pretty cool. But we go out the next day to get those bags and then throw them in the, you know, rinse them out and throw them in the dryer. The bags are gone. And I knew that my mom had been over and she decided to pull some weeds for me, which I definitely, you know, thank you, mom. That was amazing. But I was like, mom, did you see those bags that were on my porch? What happened to them? And she's like, oh, I threw them out. They were cat poop. No, mom, they're not cat poop. Those were tie-dye shirts. Why on earth would I leave bags of cat poop on my front porch when you walk like five steps and there's the trash can? Um, <laughs> well, that's the other thing. It's like, how heavy were the, were they? Because I feel like my, my mom does that sometimes too. Like she'll like just like toss like a cat litter plastic baggie out of her out next to her door and then she'll take it to the trash can later because it's like on the other side of the garage. Yeah. But like they're heavy. Like, I feel yeah. like if it's just a cu- couple of, like, T-shirts, it might not be that heavy. <laughs> exactly. But she saw something wet and squishy and assumed it was Salem having diarrhea, I guess. <laughs> and, yeah, she threw them out. And then, like, we looked in the trash. She's like, they're in the trash cans. I'm like, no, they're not. And then she's like, oh, I think they're in the bags of yard waste that I made. So we had to tear open the bags of yard waste <laughs> and dig around and find the shirts. <laughs> <laughs> well, that sounds like an adventure. And... Yeah, it was kind of amazing. <laughs> At least the tie-dye shirts turned out pretty cool. I will say that. The cat poop shirts, I mean. That's what they're going to be from now on. They're the cat poop shirts. Well, now we have an inside joke where anytime like, something gets like is missing, I'm like, oh, I threw it out. I thought it was cat poop. Oh, <laughs> <laughs> uh, that's funny. Yeah. Now that we've had our laughs, we can get down to business. Okay. So you've got some fun facts for us? I do. I have some fun facts about the great state of Oklahoma. 
Uh, we're going to start off nice and easy with the name Oklahoma. It actually comes from the Choctaw Indian language, and it means land of the red people. Okla means people, and Huma means red in Choctaw. So I thought that was kind of huh. cool. All right. Uh, do you happen to know Oklahoma's state nickname, Eden? Mm, I do not remember. Neither did I, and it seems to be a little bit more of an obscure one. So I looked into it, and the state nickname is the Sooner State. The Sooner State, yeah, okay. Yes, the Sooner that was state. one that I also never understood, just like the Show Me State. So, Yep, 100% agree. I was like, what is Sooner? Like, uh, why do they have this name? So I looked into it, and apparently Sooners was the name given to the early settlers who entered the unassigned lands in what is now the state of Oklahoma before the official start of the land rush of 1889. So basically Oklahoma got people to come there and settle because they did these huge land giveaways. Okay. And the people who got there sooner were called, very logically, Sooners. <laughs> huh. So after Oklahoma became a state in 1907, the University of Oklahoma's football team selected Sooners as its team nickname. Yeah, I knew it was a team. And since a lot of folks in the state viewed that as exemplifying like the state's energetic can-do spirit, they decided to adopt it as the state nickname as well. Okay. Makes sense. Uh, this is kind of interesting, and I did not know this, but it makes sense in, in retrospect when I think about people I know from Oklahoma. But Oklahoma serves as the headquarters for 39 Native American tribes and has the largest population of Native Americans than any other state in the country. That makes sense because I remember when um, looking around, because I'm part Lenape, mm -hmm. and they were originally in this very area that I live in now. But they've, I, I looked for like reservations around here. There are none. They were all moved out to Oklahoma. Yep. Yep. Now, you may know that Oklahoma is where the wind comes sweeping down the plain. Absolutely. But... Where the waving wheat smells so sweet. <laughs> exactly. So it shouldn't be too surprising that tornado warnings were first implemented in Oklahoma. Makes sense. Yeah, right? It's like very flat there. Uh, it's Tornado Alley, really the start of it. It, it first, the first tornado warning happened on March 25th, 1948. Uh, thanks in part to that warning, there were no injuries from the tornado that touched down that day at Tinker Air Force Base. Huh. See, when I think of Oklahoma, the thing that I always think of is the Dust Bowl of the mm -hmm. 30s. Mm -hmm. I had chat a little bit about that in, in my story. Oh, cool. Um, yeah. So if you didn't cover it in your notes, I, I got some more info for you. Because I do, too. I think that's what most people think of is like, you know, the Dust Bowls and Grapes of Wrath. <laughs> and yeah, when I think of Dust Bowls as well, then I think about one of my favorite canceled TV shows, Carnival. Oh, yeah. That was a good one. It was so good. And I'm so pissed that it ended on a major cliffhanger. It was also one of those shows where it's like, I kind of don't know what's going on, but I love it. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. Oh, so good. All right. So other firsts that we can trace to Oklahoma include the first shopping cart, which was invented in 1937. Other firsts and inventions straight out of Oklahoma include the coin-controlled parking meter, the yield sign, which was invented by an Oklahoma Highway Patrol officer in 1950, and the electric guitar. Huh. Right? Who knew? 
I don't picture electric guitars coming from Oklahoma. Yeah. The man who invented it was a renowned guitarist, and he was from Oklahoma. I just think of banjos, which I actually do have in my intro. <laughs> Uh, and one last fun fact about Oklahoma is that it has the most man-made lakes of any state. There's over 200 man-made lakes in Oklahoma. Wow. Yeah, that's a lot considering it's a very flat, relatively dry state. Yeah. But there you have it. That was very interesting. Thank you, Nicole. You're welcome. And I have an interesting story for you. I am excited. What are you going to tell me about today, Eden? Well, my story for this week takes place in Oklahoma City, Oklahoma. It's the state capital and has a population of 655,057 people and an area of over 620 square miles, making it the largest city in Oklahoma and the 25th largest in the United States. It's also the county seat of Oklahoma County. The area is known for livestock, oil, natural gas, and petroleum. It's also home to the Tinker Air Force Base. There are a lot of really cool things to do in Oklahoma City, as you could imagine from just how big this place is. So art lovers can go to the Donald W. Reynolds Visual Arts Center. Uh, the Civic Center Music Hall is great for anyone who loves music or theater. It houses the Oklahoma City Ballet, Oklahoma City Opera, Oklahoma City Philharmonic, uh, as well as concerts and Broadway shows. Oh, cool. They also have these really cool water taxis in the city to travel down in the Bricktown Canal, uh, which if I ever go here, I know I'll be doing that. I did not know about that. That's awesome. Yeah, it looks really fun. It kind of reminds you of those rides that you go on at water parks where you normally like go under waterfalls and stuff and you just kind of mm -hmm. float. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's what the, the Bricktown... Um, taxi service looks like uh museum buffs will be happy to know that they also have a bunch of museums in the city they also have a large memorial downtown to honor the victims of the oklahoma city bombings or if you're looking for something a little weirder there's actually a museum specifically for banjos which just makes me think of deliverance so there's that <laughs> that is uh i think where most people's brains go with that famous dueling banjo scene <laughs> Ding, 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 ding. Yeah, exactly. But um, it's okay because no one is going to make you squeal like a piggy in today's story. I mean, I guess I'll hold back my disappointment. This is the murder of Susan Hamilton. Hmm, I don't think I, th I recognized that name. I hadn't heard about it either, but um, it was cool because like, I had trouble finding some stuff. And then I was like, oh, Forensic Files, my old go-to. Great. <laughs> So I wanted to start this story off with a little about the victim, Susan Hamilton, but there's a royal lady with the same name. So searching for information this week was a bit of a challenge, and I wasn't really able to find much about her. So I'm going to skip right ahead to the meat and potatoes. I will, however, start by saying that although this does take place on Valentine's Day, it's not really a love story because we're never really that lucky on this show. <laughs> so Susan Hamilton was the wife of John Hamilton. He was a local OBGYN, or in other words, a doctor that specializes in your hoo-hoo. You mean my haha? -ha. That too. <laughs> oh, speaking of weird names for your vagina, my favorite is from South Park. It was Eric trying to figure out who his dad was and where he came from, and his mother said, Well, Eric, 
When a man and a woman love each other very much and they want to share that love for each other, he sticks his hoo hoo dilly in her cha cha. Her cha cha. <laughs> <laughs> that definitely that definitely changes the meaning of the song cha cha slide for me a little bit. Oh you know? God! Well, I mean, you know, you use a lot of lube for that one. <laughs> so Susan Hamilton, she helped him at his practice by running the clinic. And friends and family described her as the love of John's life. One of my sources actually was quoted as saying, I think John was astounded that he had her, that he had such a wonderful, perfect, almost perfect wife, in his opinion. Oh, God, this is really going to break my heart, isn't it? Uh, It might. So John was known to give his wife gifts like the Porsche that she drove, which was a wedding gift. And the couple would go on these lavish vacations all over. They also owned a big, beautiful house in Oklahoma City in the area known as Quail Creek, which from what I found seems to be more like a ritzy area. Mm-hmm. They had been married for like 14 or 15 years, depending on the source, at the time of her death. They had also both been married before this, and there's definitely no shame in that. I'm divorced myself, so. Uh, so let me set the scene for you a little. It was Valentine's Day, like I had said, in 2001. Susan had been home all day. Uh, Around lunchtime that day, John Hamilton had been in surgery at the clinic. But when he took his lunch break, he decided to bring Susan some flowers for Valentine's Day. Sweet and typical of somebody who is very grateful for their partner. Exactly. So he goes in the house, and when he parks out front, he notices the door of the house is wide open. Obviously, like any of us would do, he got a little nervous, and he goes inside, probably calling for her, but there is no answer. He makes his way up the stairs to find Susan unconscious on the bathroom floor. She was bleeding, and he went to check on her. He called 911, telling them that he thinks his wife might be dead and he needs help. He tried performing CPR, but it didn't work, which, spoiler alert for anyone who doesn't know, CPR isn't really meant to save anyone's life. It's more to keep someone alive until actual help arrives. And nine times out of, a t- out of ten, it just doesn't really work. I'm not saying that it's useless, but it isn't really as magical as people assume. Gotcha. And I am so thankful that I've never had to do it on a real person, but I have had training several times for jobs. Uh, so, when the police arrived and looked over the scene, lead investigator Randy Scott says that he immediately assumed that this was a robbery gone wrong, which is totally a normal conclusion to jump to since the back door was reportedly open when John arrived home. The other working theory at the time was far-right extremists. Since John was an OBGYN and Susan ran the clinic where he worked, there was the pro-lifers who had made threats to him and his family before, which, again, I will say, spoiler alert, isn't very pro-life when you think about it. Yeah, agreed. I was like, wait, what? Oh, that makes sense. Pro-life people. Yeah, because he did abortions at the clinic. Or as I like to call them, anti-choice. Yes, exactly. It's like you don't have a choice then because you're forcing your beliefs on me. But okay. So they had gone as far as to make wanted posters of John that said, (gasps) wanted by the AOG for murder and other crimes, including child abuse and assault and battery against women. Wow. Those kind of... Anti-choice activists. Okay, gotcha. Yeah, they're nuts. So now in a conservative area in a conservative state, this is obviously a big deal, especially seeing as John and Susan are pretty much like, yeah, we do abortions and we're not going to apologize for it. 
Uh, I'm not a fan of abortions myself, but I'm totally pro-choice. The government and any other person, for that matter, should have no right to tell you what you can and cannot do with your own fucking body. I'm not a woman, and I have no idea what I'd do if I accidentally got pregnant. And unless you've been in that situation, you don't really have the right to make that decision for someone else. And I will get off my soapbox now and continue my story. I couldn't find initially what AOG stood for, uh, but I took a guess as to what it stands for. And I said possibly Assembly of God, thinking it might have been a church. And I will say that their attitude is decidedly unchristian. Agreed. The only AOG Google would lead me to was Arkansas, Oklahoma gas. And I know it wasn't those guys. They're good people. (laughs) And I know this because Google said it was a great place to work. After like digging around a bit more, I found out that it that they're called the Army of God. Oh, I've heard of the Army of God. Yep. So when investigating the crime, they found that an anti-abortion group had picketed in front of their home before and also obtained a license to picket in front of the clinic. Everyone in town who knew John and Susan, though, seemed to love them. They fit in really well in town as far as my research had shown. Like, they went to the country club, you know, they did all that stuff. They were, you know, high society people. Yeah, part of the community of rich people. Exactly. So when they brought John down to the station in the video that I saw, he was a complete mess. He just kept saying, help me, please, help me, please. Uh, He was moving the desk around in front of him, and it just seemed like he was out of his mind with grief. When they did the autopsy, they found that the cause of death came from her assailant uh, bashing her head in with something. Um, they do know that he did bash uh, her head in to like the, the bathroom floor at this point, but nothing else. Uh, they just said that it was uh, blunt force trauma to the head. So before this happened, the killer had actually strangled her with some of her husband's neckties. Okay, that's... Oh. Odd yeah. murder weapon. So I don't know about you, but that seems personal to me. Strangling is very intimate. It's up close and personal. So already in my mind, I'm thinking it doesn't seem random. So when searching the house, they found the Valentine's Day card that John had written Susan in the kitchen. And it read, we are important, loving, caring people together. My life would be incomplete without you. I love you, John. Mm. This seems like a nice, normal card, right? No red flags or anything. Well, the card they found addressed to John told a much different story. Her card, which was way longer, had a little note written in the margin that said, Obviously, I bought this before last Monday. (gasps) What? No. What happened last Monday? Also in the card, it said, I bought this two weeks ago. It doesn't seem as appropriate now. I love you, Susan. Oh, John, what did you do? Yeah, that, of course, gets me, you, our listeners, and the police all thinking, what the hell is going on in their marriage at this point? So when they asked John about it, you know, hey, what's up with this? He's like, well, we had been fighting over money. I don't know about you, but people fight over money all the damn time. It's the biggest problem couples face, and it doesn't usually warrant notes like that in the card. So any idea what the real reason would have been, Nicole? I'm sure your brain is going the same direction mine is. 
I mean, traditionally, if it's not money, it's usually something involving sex and order fare. Mm-hmm. It's uh, infidelity. You're right. So two weeks earlier, Susan had actually found out that her husband was seeing a private dancer dancing for money. Do what you want me to do. <laughs> now that I got Tina Turner stuck in everyone's head, let's continue with the story. So John had been seeing a stripper, which Susan found out about due to the over 60 phone calls that he made to her. John has no chill. No, he's just like, hi, 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 hi. He's that guy online. <laughs> so what made things worse is the fact that she was also one of his patients. Okay. Now, mixing business with pleasure is one thing, but when you're a gynecologist, a gynecologist. it's just, mm-mm. <laughs> exactly. That was my thought, too. I'm like, oh, OK. Um, so this was obviously a big deal to Susan, as it would be to most people. And she actually had moved out of the house for a day or two, staying with a friend. She also made her husband write a letter to the woman stating that he could no longer be her doctor. So she wanted her lady business to be none of his, I guess you could say. <laughs> <Hey>. <laughs> so. The letter was written on the 6th, so eight days before her murder. Friends uh, that police spoke with also said that Susan was considering a divorce, which is completely understandable where cheating is concerned, because that's like the one big thing that I just do not play around with. With all this seeming a bit suspicious, the local news actually did some of the police work for the police, and they obtained a copy of John's 911 call and decided to send it to someone specializing in voice stress analysis, which looks at the micro tremors in a person's voice to see how stressed someone is. Hmm. So this, to me, while brilliant, seems uh, to fall along the same lines as a lie detector test. So I don't know how much stock I'd really put into it. It's, again, just like a polygraph, not admissible in court either. Okay. Uh, so it might be slightly more reliable, but I, I don't know. Anyway, it showed that basically he wasn't as stressed as he had sounded saying that there was no excess blood flow like there would be in someone who is panicked, meaning that his call was rehearsed. Interesting. They also went over his oddball behavior at the police station, which I didn't want to say it before because I didn't want to spoil anything, but it didn't sit right with me. Uh, the way that he was pushing the desk around and moving erratically just seemed a little hammy and over the top to me. Mm-hmm. Also, I didn't like the fact that he kept saying, help me, help me, because I don't know if you've heard this before, but they say that, and I'm not saying this is 100% the case, but they say that if a person is guilty, they'll be like, help me. I don't know what I'm going to do. I can't believe this. All I statements, whereas an innocent person would make it more about the victim. So unfortunately, he did have an alibi for the time of the murder. So, like I had mentioned earlier, he was in surgery while this went on, and there were witnesses to this. But, however, things aren't always as they seem. The evidence suggested that he was there when they looked at things such as blood spatter. Let's say you are trying to save a bleeding person. It's normal to get some of their blood on you, but it wouldn't be what they found on John's clothes. John's clothes had blood spatter, which, as we know, is a different pattern, suggesting that he was there at the time of death. 
There are also microscopic droplets on his shoes, which are the result of medium-velocity impact spatter, which would happen during a blunt force trauma event. There was also blood spatter inside his sleeve. Oh. Which Hmm. would be pretty much impossible unless he was the murderer. They ended up testing the blood from every single area on his clothes, and it was all a match to Susan. But that's still not the most damning part. There's something else that doesn't fit with his story at all. They went over his car with luminol, and they found more of Susan's blood along with hair and tissue. Wait, Susan's hair and tissue? Yes, in his car. Huh, okay. She had never been in his car in the story that he told police. He had supposedly found her at home on the bathroom floor. So what's going on? Then they decided to talk to the maid. And they were able to find a possible murder weapon from this when she told them that a marble figurine from the house had mysteriously, and quite conveniently, I might add, gone missing. The next logical step was to check out the alibi that John had, which they did. He had been in two two surgeries that day, that much is true. But there was a time in between those surgeries that could not be accounted for, leaving him enough time to commit the murder. Whoa, okay. And to further prove this, they found pages uh, pages from the hospital telling him he needed to return to the hospital because his patient was already under anesthesia. <gasps> oh, that's like a, almost like a smoking gun to his alibi where it's like, why Hell are they yeah. paging you if you weren't if you were in surgery at the whole time? Exactly. With all this evidence piling up, they arrest John for the murder of his wife Susan. And now we get to the part I usually love with these stories. As you all know, I'm a sucker for a good trial. How to Get Away with Murder ruined me as well to, as well as our DTL is DTF episode. <laughs> so, it's not quite as scandalous as DTL is DTF, but it's still pretty damn great. During this trial, the defense called the blood spatter expert to the stand, which was just a dumb move on their part. And I don't know why they wanted him as their witness, but he was like, yup, there's no way he'd have this blood spatter like this all over his clothes if he hadn't been the killer. Hashtag sorry, not sorry. (laughs) It was also uh, formulated that the reason for the tissue, blood and hair in his car came from the transportation of the murder weapon, which he had rolled up in his bloodstained pants to dump. Oh, so maybe not her body, but like the murder weapon. Hmm. Interesting. Yeah. So John, not knowing when to quit, was like, yeah, okay. So uh, the blood got in my car after I stopped doing CPR so I could move my car for the emergency vehicles. Dumbass. Mm-hmm. Like, really? No one's, no one's buying that. What about the tissues, John? Yeah. So. Obviously, since one of the biggest parts of criminal defense is to create a reasonable scapegoat to pin it on, they chose the anti-abortion groups. I agree that they sounded a little plausible at first, but not with all the evidence pointing right to John and not with how intimate the act of strangulation and bludgeoning are. Remember the thing that he said about a fight involving money? Yes, I do. Well. That may have also been true because John had been lying to her about money for a while. He had been giving a good amount of money to a child from his previous marriage, and he never told Susan about it. 
And she had actually told him that if he ever lied to her like that again, that she would leave him. Do you know if like that was like part of a normal arrangement? Like she knew he was going to support his kid from his previous marriage or is it like he was giving them extra money? That I don't know. It seems like he was giving them like a lot of money. Or like maybe like I'm assuming Susan knew about the child from his previous marriage. Oh, yeah. I mean, that would be a hard thing to explain. <laughs> yeah, that's a hard thing to keep secret through 15 years of marriage. So I'm pretty sure that, you know, they knew. Okay. But I think it was just that he was giving this child a lot of money. Uh, Another damning bit of testimony came from Susan's daughter when she said that her mother had told her the night before that she felt scared and alone. So he was found guilty of the murder of his wife, Susan Hamilton, and he was sentenced to life without parole. It was kind of weird, though, because on the Forensic Files episode that I watched uh, for this one, which thanks, YouTube, for having pretty much every episode of that show in existence, uh, they had this juror interviewed, and the guy was like, we all felt sorry for him because of his situation, but the evidence was so overwhelming. Uh, What situation? He was trying to fuck a stripper behind his wife's back and doing other stupid shit and killed his wife for fuck's sake. Like, well, I, I don't understand. That- that leads me to question, like, what did the prosecutors say were, was his motivation that, like, his wife had caught him with the stripper and so he decided to kill her? Or was there more to it? Yeah. Yeah, I don't understand. I or they just, find... like, it doesn't really matter. We don't have to show a clear motive because it's obvious from the evidence that he was involved in her murder. Yeah. Yeah, I, I wouldn't know that, too. But I, it was probably, like, the the prosecution probably suggested that he killed her because of the stripper. Mm, okay. That's what I'm thinking. So also, um, I don't think they felt too bad since they convened for around two hours, which is a really, really speedy verdict. Yeah. Two hours for a jury is not a long time at all. Well, that is my story for this week. What did you think, Nicole? It's interesting because... <sighs> Like I said before, the motive, the motive is kind of like, well, we don't need a motive because uh, clearly he's got to murder his wife for yeah. a stripper. But when you do think about the compounding problems in the marriage between his secrets around finances and infidelity, it does sort of make me wonder if it was maybe just a matter of time before something terrible would happen to Susan. You know what I mean? Yeah. I think it's interesting, though, that he sort of tried to leverage the anti-choice activists as scapegoats for himself, though. I feel yeah. like if John hadn't acted so rashly, maybe he could have Gotten made that with it. Yeah, made that more elaborate. Like, I feel like that I would watch that Murder, She Wrote episode. They were a very good scapegoat because mm-hmm. mm-hmm. they had had prior ties with them. They had had, you know, prior animosity toward them. And they clearly knew where they lived. Yeah, because they picked it out front of their house. So memes, motive, and opportunity are all right there. It's just the fact that, John, you're a dumbass. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's just surprising how quickly like this very like deep love that they apparently shared for 15, 10, 15 years just turned passion. Is the, yeah, like the flip side of passion, right? Yeah, absolutely. Because, um, I mean, cheating is just, it's awful. It makes you feel horrible so it's 
I don't know. It's I completely understand where Susan was coming from with it. Um, and 60 times is a lot of times to call that stripper. <laughs> um, yeah, so it's really fucked up. And I feel really, really bad for Susan. And I don't know what the juror was getting at when he said about I feel sorry for him because of his situation. Yeah, that like, seems a bit odd. Was he just being a typical straight dude and being like, well, we all want to fuck strippers. So <laughs> basically, <laughs> like, you know, those strippers, you can't resist them. I get it. Exactly. But... My sources for this week were Wikipedia, BricktownWaterTaxi.com for part of my intro, ABCNews.go.com, an episode of Forensic Files titled Deadly Valentine, BevelGardner.com, iHorror.com, and Oklahoman.com. Cool. Thank you, Eden. I appreciate your your digging up a nice true crime tidbit story for us. Absolutely. I guess we are going to take a quick break and we will be back. And we're back. Hi, everyone. I have actually a very lighthearted news story for you this week. All right, let's hit it with the news. Stray dog who befriended purple unicorn finds a doctor. This one comes from news, ABC News Channel 12. So a stray dog who stole hearts across eastern North Carolina and the country will soon have a new home. The one-year-old lab mix was spotted wandering around the Dollar General in Mount Olive trying to sneak in multiple times to steal a purple stuffed unicorn. Mm. Employees called Dublin County Animal Control, but the pup wasn't charged for the crime. <laughs> <laughs> An officer bought the unicorn for him instead. Oh, that's so sweet. That's wonderful. Staffers who now named the dog Sisu, S-I-S-U, and say the unicorn accompanies him everywhere he goes. Oh, it's his buddy. Oh, there's a picture of him. He looks super happy to be with that unicorn. (laughs) Sisu and his beloved unicorn have happy news to share. Workers say someone from the North Carolina Lab Rescue is set to adopt him and his friend. Duplin County Animal Control Supervisor Joe Newburn says the officer who bought the toy, Samantha Lane, was happy to see Sisu. This is something she's always done, Newburn said. This isn't something new to her. It's just a different dog. But yes, she's always doing stuff for the animals. That's really cool. That's the ideal person to have working in animal control. (laughs) Yeah. News Channel 12 also reached out to Dollar General, and the corporate office says the company plans to donate pet food to Dublin County Animal Services. We are positively thrilled that Sisu is enjoying his new toy. We are also grateful for Animal Control Officer Lane in helping to rescue him. To show our appreciation, we plan to provide the Dublin County Animal Services with a pet food donation and Officer Lane with a special thank you gift as well as a few extra of Sisu's beloved purple unicorns to his eventual adoptive family. Oh, he'll always have his unicorn. That's great. That's so funny that like, just like the things that, that animals will fixate on as like their favorite thing. Oh yeah. There was this one dog that I saw on Facebook whose favorite toy was Santa. (laughs) It was like a stuffed Santa. And then his owner took him to see Santa at the mall and he was so happy to get a picture with Santa. (laughs) I bet. (laughs) <laughs> I think that's so great. Did you see the um 
the thing that I posted in response to your cryptid creatures thing that you posted on our uh, Facebook page? I don't think I did. Let me check. It's a book by a guy called Chuck Tingle. Oh, I love Chuck Tingle. It was the book is called My Husband and I Find Our Unicorn and She's a Bigfoot. Also, my husband is a dinosaur. Yeah. What the fuck is up with those books? And they're real. You can buy them on Amazon. Yes. Chuck Tingle, I believe, was nominated for an award. Like a, he was. He like, won't shut up about it. A so Hugo funny. Award. Yeah, Hugo. I'm like, oh my God, I love it. Yeah, uh, he's li- literally one of my favorite accounts to follow on Instagram. Like, if you, oh, if no, you have Instagram I need to f- and you want to chuckle, Chuck Tingle. I need to follow him because these are too good. The one that I saw first was this one called... I went on a hunt for the Easter Bigfoot, and now he's eating my ass. <laughs> then I found that one where it's just like, oh, so my husband is a dinosaur. And I'm like, what the fuck? And there's another one that says, Donald Trump pounded <laughs> in the butt by the handsome Russian T-Rex who also peed on his butt, then blackmailed him with the videos of his butt getting peed on. So I also appreciate that he has a lot of, of Mothman stories, but it's also very topical. Like one of his recent novellas was called I Freed This Handsome Cargo Ship from the Suez Canal and Now He's Stuck in My Butt. <laughs> what is going on? Why? I mean, because why not? That's what I say. Why not? I, part of me wants to spend like the three bucks or whatever and just get one of his books to read because they just have to be nuts. I, you know, I have a friend who uh, first told me about Chuck Tingle, and she said that they're actually not half bad. Like they're they're pretty well written for erotica. <laughs> so all, there you go. all I've heard is that like the spelling errors and grammatical errors are just the fucking worst. <laughs> but people are like, I love this book. It's funny, and I'm just like, okay, good. At least you're not getting off to it because that would be weird. I mean, not just kink shame anyone, of course, but you know. But I love Chuck Tingle now. Yeah. Follow Chuck Tingle on Insta. It'll brighten your day. I'm going to. (laughs) All righty, Nicole. You have a fun story for us. Yeah. I also hope my story will brighten your day, Eden. Um, I think it will, just given the fact that today we're heading to Beaver, Oklahoma. Beaver. Oh, God. Okay. Mm Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I mean, if you want to get all those jokes out of the way now, it's fine, because I'll be saying Beaver quite a bit. Okay. I'll just probably giggle a lot. Because I'm two. I know. Ditto. I was giggling when I was writing it because I am also two. (laughs) Uh, Beaver, Oklahoma is the seat of Beaver County. And Beaver County is the easternmost of the three counties that make up the Oklahoma Panhandle. Oh. Now, the Panhandle is that little part of Oklahoma that's not the big square. So it kind of goes juts up from Oklahoma above Texas. Mm-hmm. And the Panhandle is a little bit different from the other areas of Oklahoma because it's part of the American High Plains. So think uh, Kansas type area. Okay. It's a very, very flat. Yeah, very flat. It's actually cold and semi arid because of the high elevation in the Oklahoma Panhandle and it has very huh. low, low moisture. So it's almost like it has deserted areas. Gotcha. Okay. Overall, the area is so dry, it only receives about 10 to 20 inches of rain per year. Wow. Yeah. Now, the town of Beaver is located along a river. Can you guess what the name of that river is? The Beaver River? You're right. Sweet. <laughs> the Beaver River, which is also known as the North Canadian River, uh, is where the town sits. It was founded in 1879 under the name Beaver City. 
Uh, it's my second favorite city after Fist City. Fist City. Oh, my God. <laughs> Now, Beaver City was originally a trading post and a stop along a major trail that used to bring buffalo, cattle, and freight between Dodge City, Kansas, and the rest of Texas. By 1883, the trading post grew into a town that had its own post offices and several businesses like a hotel, saloon, general store, restaurants, what you'd expect in sort of a trail town. In 1887, a Presbyterian church was built in the town, and it still stands today. It's listed on the National Register of Historic Places as the oldest church in the Oklahoma Territory. Huh. Now, by 1900, the town of Beaver was mainly supported by this cattle ranching economy that grew up in the Oklahoma panhandle. And it's always been a pretty sparsely populated town, um, but by 1900, its population had reached a whopping 112 people. Oh, wow. That's a lot. Yep. Yep. Very, very a lot. Very, very much people. Very, very a lot. I like that. <laughs> then there was an expansion in the Homestead Acts that I mentioned in the intro to this episode that brought a lot more farmers to the region. So by 1903, the population of Beaver had almost tripled to 326 residents. Now, Oh, my gosh. It's growing like crazy. I like know. Doubling, tripling in size. Uh, to support all this economic growth, a rail line that was actually built to connect Beaver to the larger Missouri-Kansas-Texas railway. And by 1920, the town's population had tripled again, this time to 920 residents. Love a good connected Beaver. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Now, in the 1930s, we see the Dust Bowl begin. Uh, so what brought the Dust Bowl on was drought and poor farming techniques that resulted in eroding the very rich topsoil of the American plains. It caused these series of devastating dust storms that really took a toll on not only the agriculture, but also the ecology of the region. People kept freaking dying from inhaling all that shit, mm -hmm, too. Mm -hmm. The area that was most brutally impacted by the, these storms was called the Dust Bowl, and then it became synonymous with the whole phenomena. And the Oklahoma Panhandle was dead center. So a lot of the agriculture in that area was just completely devastated in the 1930s. Now, compounded by the financial pressures of the Great Depression, most of the towns in the Oklahoma Panhandle saw a rapid decline in population. Oddly, the town of Beaver actually grew, albeit kind of modestly at this time, expanding to 1,100 residents by 1940. The population of Beaver peaked in the 1960s, topping out around 2,000 residents. Oh, wow. They really did grow. Yeah, it grew quite a bit. Today, there's about 1,500 residents in Beaver, and the city covers roughly one square mile. Now, the economy in the town today is still very much driven by cattle ranching, wheat and milo farming, corporate hog farms, and gas and oil production. It is most of the businesses and amenities that you'd expect in a town of its size, including two banks, a hospital, medical clinic, nursing homes, various retail shops, groceries, motels, and restaurants. Some points of interest around the town include the Beaver County Pioneer Library, and the Jones and Plummer Trail Museum, which offers books and artifacts for researchers about Oklahoma's early settlement and history. Very nice. There's also the Beaver County Fairgrounds, where the county fair is held each September. And then each April, the fairground is also home to the annual Cimarron Territory Celebration, 
which features one of the best contests I've ever heard of. It is the World Championship Cow Chip Throwing Contest. They throw cow shit. That's right, Eden. I said cow chip, though. Chip. Yeah, I know you did. Which is just dried cow shit. Yep. I'm aware of it because you know what they ate on, I believe it was the Mayflower when coming over here? What? Cow chips. They ate it? They ate them because they had no food. Uh, That seems weird. I feel like they would burn it maybe, but I'll have to. I'm going to check that because that seems fucking creepy to eat. I learned it in like elementary school and I was so disturbed. I don't know. I wouldn't wouldn't trust Catholic school. That's all. That's true. (laughs) Catholic school led me astray quite a few times. In a weird twist, the town of Beaver has hosted this contest each year since 1969. It was kind of done as, as a way to get people interested in visiting Beaver and learning about its history as a pioneer settlement in Oklahoma, but also because it's kind of fun to watch people throw cow shit around. Of course. Here's how it works. Competitors select two dried cow chips, so these big dried discs, and then they fling them any way they want, overhand, underhand, like a discus, whatever floats your boat, and see how far they can get. Huh. While weird, it does make a bit of sense to be in a town like Beaver. The cows here outnumber people 16 to 1. Alrighty. It's also meant uh, that the early settlers in the area did actually collect and burn cow chips for fuel. So, because this area, the panhandle, is completely flat and lacks trees. Makes sense. Huh. Uh, if you're curious about the farthest throw. Yes. All right. It was set by a fellow named Drew Russell in 2015 who entered the contest on a gag and hurled his chip 188 feet and six inches. <laughs> Oh, my God. Okay. Well, does the trophy look like a monkey? Because they're the ones that throw shit. No, it's even better. So they actually... No, it's a mascot called King Cowchip. I'm sorry, what? King Cowchip. Yeah, because that's normal. Okay, continue. And there is also a giant statue of a beaver holding a cowchip that they bring out each year. And I'm just going to send you a picture of this big beaver right now. Send me a picture of your big beaver, Nicole. I'm going to send you a big picture of my beaver holding the cow chip as well as somebody illustrating what it's like to throw a cow chip oh i opened it up and it's still a chuck tingle novel that i took a picture of (laughs) um which was a t-rex person uh with donald trump hair Uh, okay oh my god (laughs) that is a big beaver holding a cow chip and there's a guy in the second picture who looks like he's pretending to throw it Wow. Okay. Yes. So while throwing dried out bovine feces is pretty damn weird, it's not the only strangeness associated with Beaver, Oklahoma. And it's not the weirdest thing we've heard today because Chuck Tingle. Exactly. Thank you, Chuck Tingle. (sighs) About a mile outside of town lies Beaver Dunes Park. Uh, Beaver Dunes covers 520 acres of a state park that includes 300 acres of sandy hills, two camping grounds, a picnic area with horseshoe pits, a playground, volleyball, basketball courts, some hiking trails, and of course, Lake Beaver, which is a two-acre lake that is annually stocked with fish. Alrighty, so it's another man-made lake. Yep, another man-made lake. Of course, it's called Beaver, because why not? Yeah. It's beautiful there. I've looked at lots of pictures. I would really enjoy going to this state park of us ever in Oklahoma. But it's also the location of multiple mysterious disappearances. Oh. 
Uh, if you've heard of it before, you may have heard it referred to as Oklahoma's Bermuda Triangle. Oh, got another triangle. Mm-hmm. The Shape of Terror. <laughs> so true. And the Sandy Dunes have been the site of various unexplained phenomenon for over 500 years. Please tell me more. It's super interesting. I was like, wait a minute, like 500 years, that's a long time. Well, that's because the earliest recorded incidents of hap strange happenings in the area of Beaver Dunes Park actually come from the notebooks of a conquistador. Francisco Vasquez de Coronado. Have you ever heard of Coronado? He's, he's definitely one of yes. the ones we learn about in school. Yeah, I have heard of him. Okay. So for those who need a little brush up like I did, because I knew the name, but not what the guy did. <laughs> he, exactly. I don't remember a whole hell of a lot. <laughs> he was a Spanish conquistador. He was also a governor of New Galicia, which was a province of New Spain in what is today Northwest Mexico. Coronado is probably best remembered for leading this large expedition to explore the territory that runs from present-day Mexico all the way to Kansas. Uh, he did this between 1540 and 1542. Coronado hoped that he would reach the fabled cities of Cibola, aka the Seven Cities of Gold. Okay. But instead, he ended up being the first European to see the Grand Canyon and the Colorado River. Huh. Over the course of Coronado's expedition, it took him directly through the Oklahoma Panhandle on his way to Kansas. And when he was making this trek, his indigenous guides advised him that it would be best if they had avoided the sandy dune area that is now Beaver Dunes Park. They said that they had chatted with the other local people in the area and that the local people called it Shaman's Portal. Interesting. Either way, the locals told Coronado's guides that they believed that the dunes hit a portal to another world or dimension and that numerous members of their community had disappeared without a trace while crossing the dunes. Pack your bags. We're going now. <laughs> Get in, loser. We're going portaling. <laughs> so Coronado, of course, being a conquistador, ignores the advice. And he leads his expedition straight through the dunes. Uh, according to his journal from the expedition, as his party crossed over the dunes, there was a sudden flash of green lightning. And three of his companions disappeared before his very eyes. What? Yep. It's. Actually, in his historical record. <laughs> uh, wow. Yeah. He said it was a really, it was a sudden flash and that the disappearance was, quote, the work of the devil. As one would think at that time. Now, while this is the first recorded disappearance that we have in Beaver Dunes Park, it's far from the last. This strange green lightning has been seen repeatedly over the next four centuries, and the disappearances include a pioneer woman in 1897 and a park visitor as recently as 1987. Wow. I know, right? I'm like, how have I never heard about this? Yeah. So, of course, I dug in a little bit more. I started looking into like, well, maybe this natural phenomenon of green lightning is like something else out there in the world. I didn't really come across anything that sounded similar to the sudden appearance of green light or light green lightning flashes like people claim to have seen in Beaver Dunes Park. Yeah. There are several natural phenomenons that exhibit green lights, but they really don't fit what people say they see. So there's things out there like will-o'-wisps. There's flashes of green light that people see during certain Hawaiian sunsets. Uh, there's ball, light, ball lightning, which has green hues. A lot of ball lightning will happen over New Mexico. Beavers and balls. Beavers and balls. And they're all like these atmospheric ghost lights. 
But that's not really what people say happens in beaver. What they think it could be, according to tell me what's happening to your beaver. And it's <laughs> according to some folks local to my beaver, uh, no. <laughs> according to some of the the locals near beaver, the source of the green light is pretty obvious to them. It's a buried alien spacecraft. Well, uh, obviously, obviously. Now, I thought this was like okay. Well, that's a jump, but tell me more. I'll go on this adventure in the dunes with you. Hell yeah. Now, the speculation comes from the fact that locals have been seeing military-looking people conducting digs in the dunes for the past 30 or 40 years. People have stories about seeing these folks who flash official-looking government IDs and then tell them that they're securing areas of Beaver Dune Park and they need to leave. Weird. Yep. And there's even some posted signs that will stop visitors from venturing to certain areas. So I'm like, okay, well, what else do we know about this? And I came across these stories from academics and researchers who study the dunes, as well as the indigenous cultures of the Oklahoma panhandle. You see, around this area of the panhandle, there's lots of ruins from early indigenous societies. And I came across one story from a man named Dr. Mark Thatcher. Now, he said that in the early 1990s, he began conducting a three-year study of the dunes after an archaeologist he knew from Oklahoma State University sent him a letter about the strange findings and happenings in Beaver Dune Park. One day, while he was at a site, it was shut down by men with military credentials, and they escorted him out of the area. Weird again. Okay, so there is definitely something weird going on here. There is something weird there for sure uh, there was another university geological team who was studying the area in the mid 90s and they took several geological samples and found strange anomalies that included iodized soil and electromagnetic interference huh and these findings as well as the kind of spooky men in black like military presence in parts of the park have led some people to speculate that maybe there's an ancient alien spacecraft buried beneath the dunes and that's what's causing some of these disappearances that's so strange mm-hmm. oh and that's not it that's not, not all i should say people also think there's other things buried in beaver dunes park several sources said that parts of the park are known as Native American burial grounds. Oh, fun. Right? One of our classic what could possibly go wrong ingredient here at Roadside Horror Show. Exactly. <laughs> and Oklahoma would be the place for it. Exactly. Exactly. Um, I'm a little unsure personally about this last claim. I'm kind of like, yeah, well, I mean, probably there's some Native Americans buried somewhere around there, considering there's Native American ruins in the area around like the town of Beaver and most of the panhandle was inhabited by indigenous people before Europeans got there. But Eden, that is what I discovered in the the sandy, sandy panhandle around my beaver. I mean, around Beaver. (laughs) If you have a sandy panhandle around your beaver, you're probably, you know, not getting a lot. (laughs) That is nuts. That's, yeah, I mean, I I feel like because of the weird men in black-like activity that there has to be something or someone actually taking these claims seriously from the government. Mm -hmm. Because, I don't know, I, it's very strange and it's something that I would definitely like to explore more because I I don't know how to explain it. I can't really explain it logically and rationally. 
I know. And it's 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 interesting when you dig in more to like natural phenomenon, uh, especially like atmospheric lights. And it's there's lots of atmospheric lights everywhere in around the world, but nothing that's yeah. so close to the ground, nothing that's in such a dry climate. Yeah. And not a whole lot of green. Yeah. Yeah. And I think it's just odd too that it's so close to this little town in the panhandle that has survived and grown through all of the ecological changes of that area over the past century. And it's like, well, maybe there's a reason why. Yeah. That is so strange. I'm definitely going to have to research this further because I I don't know what to think. Good luck on that research. Um, I can share some of my sources with you to get you off to the right start. That'd be great. I found a lot of info on Wikipedia, on okhistory.org, modernfarmer.com, of course, only in your state. Uh, and then two other great websites, ancestralfindings.com and jeanmariebahouse.com. All righty. Thank you for that, Nicole. Mm-hmm. You're welcome. Well, that is the end of our episode. And if you would like to contact us, if you know anything about the weird green lights of Oklahoma, you can do that at roadsidehorrorshow at gmail.com. If you'd like to catch up with us on social media, if you're interested to see this big statue of a beaver with a cow chip that I will be posting, you can follow us on Instagram and Facebook. We are Roadside Horror Show. Or catch up with us on Twitter at Roadside Horror. You can also visit our website, which is roadsidehorrorshow.podbean.com. We'd like to thank E. Massey for our intro and outro music and Yax Rocks Designs for our, our wonderful logo. Until next time, gang. Creep, creep on, on creeping creep on. on.